There is no time like the 2020s to start a company, to start a startup. You know, with the rise of the internet, you can learn anything at a very low cost, if not for free. You can build anything without needing to know how to code with tools like Bubble and Adalo. And you can get the word out about your products for free by using you know sites like Twitter, Product Hunt, and Reddit. There's no time like the 2020s to build a company. Yet one element of kind of entrepreneurship and company building that hasn't caught up with the times is venture capital. Unless you live you know in San Francisco or New York, chances are you may know what venture capital is, but you may not really know how it works. You may not know who the good VCs are. And you may not know how they think. So with this podcast of Forward Thinking Investors, I want to dive into this world. I want to help anyone in the world understand what is venture capital, who are the great venture capitalists, and how do they think about their day-to-day with the goal to help more people understand how it works so they can go out and raise capital for themselves. And they can build a billion dollar companies just like you know Larry did at Google or Travis did at Uber or Katrina did at Stitch Fix. That can be you, but it just takes some education. And I'm using this podcast as a medium to teach everyone more about venture capital. So if you want to learn about it, you want to dive in, you want to meet some awesome investors, stick around, listen to some episodes, and I, and I hope you enjoy. All right. How's it going, everyone? Welcome to another episode of Forward Thinking Investors, where we talk to investors about all things investing. Today, I'm very excited to be talking to Caitlin Donnelly, who's a founding manager partner at Avalanche VC. Welcome to the show. How's it going? Thanks. Great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, excited to have you on. I'm looking forward to diving into all things investing with you. I think for my first question, love for you to just give kind of a high-level overview. What is Avalanche VC? What do you like investing in? And just give us that overview uh, to start this off. Yeah, so Avalanche is a pre-seed seed stage fund uh, that is highly opinionated. So we look for things that we call avalanches, so invisible uh, trends underneath the surface and uh, that set up a situation where you could have massive sector change. And our verticals that we look at right now are how people learn, earn, and own. So like ed tech, future of work, web three, um, some like long tail business SaaS products. Cool. So my next question is, you know, every VC, uh, you know, anyone that manages some sort of capital, they have like a journey of how they got to their thesis. They like, you know, obviously didn't just decide to start this and like, oh, pull something out of the hat and come up with this. So I'd love to hear kind of a dual, like, how would you kind of get into investing? And then kind of at that same time, how would you end up on your current thesis? What's the journey that you walked down to land you on, uh, um, you know, where you're currently at? Yeah. Well, it's, you know, I think every investor's journey is, is, is personal and, and lifelong. So I remember, you know, I've been a lifelong investor um, and student of financial markets, including in high school, thinking about managing my own money and indexing to Vanguard. And I, you know, went to Duke for undergrad, studied economics, uh, thought I was going to go work on wall street and actually interned at Morgan Stanley in their sales and trading division and wrote my senior thesis on Vanguard International Mutual Funds. But uh, I graduated in 2008. And so, you know, I kind of looked at the economic environment at that time and thought, maybe there's other things I should should do instead of going straight to Wall Street. And I um, was president of the student union at the time, which was the largest uh, student body on campus. And so, and I was, I was thinking to myself a little bit more like a CEO or an operator. So I interviewed and got a position at McKinsey in their San Francisco office and worked there instead. 
And so I joined McKinsey in 20, uh, 2008 and did like finance and tech across Silicon Valley, a lot of like liquidity stress tests for banks, um, cost cutting across tech companies. And then in my third year, I did some work with the global head of McKinsey's education practice, Sir Michael Barber. And he announced that he was leaving McKinsey to join Pearson and asked if I'd be his chief of staff. And so Pearson is a, you know, a large public, traditionally a publishing house. We own the Financial Times, Penguin Books, a lot of textbooks. Uh, but the CEO had this vision to become a global education company. And so I joined first to design Pearson's global efficacy strategy. So how they measure learning outcomes across their suite of products and services. And then I wanted to get, I'd always wanted to get back into investing or financial markets. And so I saw the opportunity at Pearson to found their corporate venture capital arm and get involved with um, advising on some of their LP commitments and corporate M&A and ended up founding the fund and running that for five and a half years. So that at, at the time was focused on education and ed tech. And I loved being an investor. I loved um, leading rounds. I think that investors that can invest with conviction can create self-fulfilling prophecies that move the world forward. And um, I published a bunch of st strategic papers at that time. And one of them was called An Avalanche is Coming, Higher Education and the Revolution Ahead. And it uh, predicted the rise of Coursera, the importance of the Thiel Fellowship, uh, the use of Y Combinator as a more important credential than an MBA. And um, so then, you know, I. I was doing corporate VC and and realized that it, I was always going to be an employee of Pearson and and be beholden to their corporate agenda, which would change, you know, periodically, and that just wasn't for me. So, um, with uh, Sir Michael Barber, my my mentor, we had been kicking around an idea for a long time about building um, a firm that would work with governments to drive big reform programs, so similar to the work we were doing at McKinsey, and we decided uh, to start that and build it full time. And so um, I started Delivery Associates with a couple of other partners. And that's now, you know, a, a global business, employees on six continents, 250 full time members, clients all over the world. And I'm on the board, but I always wanted like was trying to get back to, to venture. And so um, Luckily, you know, that's been a very successful business and I've done well. And so I started angel investing about three years ago. And then I rolled some of my angel investments into Avalanche Fund One and focused on companies at that time that were transforming how people um, learned, earned, and lived. And um, kind of, you know, wanted, wanted to do some ed tech because that was my background, but wanted to be more expansive from building delivery associates I'd seen that uh, there was, you know, it was a remote first company and there was a whole series of infrastructure that you would, uh, and software that you could put in place to manage a remote workforce. Um, and then I, you know, saw a lot of changes in how people could go from being gig economy workers and freelancers to really thinking of themselves as entrepreneurs and running their own micro businesses. So I wanted to invest behind that as well. And then the ethos of Web3 and crypto were always very appealing to me. Uh, having started a government consulting firm like governance and public goods and how you think about yourself as a citizen uh, was, was pretty core to the ethos of the crypto movements. And so that was a space that I had to network in and, and deep interest and, and wanted to bring all of those three 
three themes together into a fund. And so fund one was kind of the demo, get into to many deals, build relationships with founders, show a track record outside of Pearson. And then fund two, which I've just launched is doubling down on that strategy in a much more like institutional systematic way where we can lead deals and, um, you know, take bigger ownership stakes and, and work with founders full time. 100%. So let's kind of go off from there. So let's say you meet a founder or someone's listening to this, right? And they're like, oh my gosh, like I'm totally building in, in this thesis area. Um, and let's say you, you, they get a meeting with you. Like when you meet a founder, what are the things that you look for, you know, when you, when you are looking for like the perfect investment opportunity? Is it market? Is it founder, team, product, like other stuff? You, what are the things that are most important for you at this stage in the investing journey of a company? I think you look for, or I look for, well, one of the questions I ask, but this isn't necessarily always the first question is like, why do you care? Like, why you, why this idea? Because I like to invest in people who, what they're building is their life's work. They have a personal commitment to it. They believe that they can make a dent in the world. I'm not interested in investing in founders who are like, well, you know, I thought my next career step was that I would, you know, found a company and then I might be a venture capitalist, but I really just want to found a company first. Like I'm looking for people who are deeply passionate. And then secondly, and usually how I end up meeting people is is we write, uh, I write these blogs called obviously the future about avalanches that I believe are happening and like over the next, like decades long changes. And so usually we have a shared worldview around that avalanche and belief in the way that the future is going to be. And so the founder, you know, really cares. We have shared alignment about that vision and then they are equipped to be able to build behind that. So whatever their product is or their like company idea, they are able to show that they're building um, and they can continue to build the solution to uh, the opportunity. I think that last bucket, you know, at least in my experience, uh, you know, every founder in the world that wants to raise money thinks they're equipped and ready, but they might like may not know what they don't know about the, you know, this industry of building billion dollar companies. I'm curious if, if there was a, let's call it a first time founder, really raw, really ambitious, smart, but they came to you and they were just like, you know, we're raising money potentially in the wrong way for a first time founder. Like what are things that you wish people that had big ambitions knew about raising capital that they may not knew, no, they may not know off the bat that could actually be hurting their chances of raising like in the short term, uh, if they, you know, didn't know these things. I think that uh, there's no such thing as overnight successes. And that often, like if founders are coming to me and they're really raw, they probably think that, oh, I'm starting a company, I should go raise a round. And the reality is it's like, well, you probably should have been like kind of starting that company, maybe like essentially two years, maybe before you like quit your job. Like you might go be an employee number one or like an early employee at sort of in a, in a similar space, be like gaining skills while like working on your business plan on the side, or maybe you've taken grant, like gotten, gotten grant capital. Um, and then you're going to go out and raise venture money after you have, um, some serious traction, uh, like delivery associates, the company I founded, uh, we never raised money actually. So like it, 
I, I have like the, the view of being a founder that hasn't raised venture capital. And um, we, so we bootstrapped it. And part of that was by, you know, signing contracts before hiring people and, and generating expenses. And it's, and, and I've seen that work out, you know, very well. Um, and so I think it depends on, on the founder, like some teams have been thinking about their ideas for a, for a long time, or they're like a natural extension of what they've done before, or like, you know, most of the ed tech companies in my portfolio, like one of the ones um, that's done particularly well is called Prisms of Reality, their math curriculum in VR. I um, wrote an investor support letter to the founder to get a National Science Foundation grant. Like she was building the company three or four years before she got venture capital funding and got and took on a, a million plus of National Science Foundation grants. So I think that's one of the under told um, or underappreciated pieces of most stories is the amount of time before you put fuel on a fire with venture capital that, you know, people do a lot of R&D. Totally. I can relate to that, you know, through multiple companies, I've now been in tech in for eight years. And I just like, you see a lot in, in a cycle of eight years and it's just like, oh, like, you know, thinking back when I first started in 2014, you know, I was totally in this category. Oh, got an idea. Let's raise millions of dollars. And it's just funny looking back how naive, you know, that mindset is, but everyone starts, you know, everyone has their day one, which I think is the fun thing about venture yeah. and startups. Like everyone has that first day when they don't know what they don't know. And then it, depending on how long they want to walk down the journey, they figure out what, what what's actually going on. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I'm curious for you, what is... um. You know, now, I mean, now you obviously have your own firm, you were angel, uh, you're an angel investor before then, and then you were at Pearson before then. Um, has anything changed in like kind of your day to day in investing? Or I guess, I guess the question is, when you're leading the fund over at Pearson, now what you're leading your current fund, is your day to day pretty much the same? Or is it different because it's your own firm this time? Well, it's a bit different, because when I was at, at Pearson, I took board seats. And so um, I spent a lot more time like going and visiting portfolio companies and serving on the board. And now I invested at an earlier stage where I'd say I still do the same things of working with founders. And in fact, sometimes more intensively, but not um, at that sort of same cadence. Uh, and then, you know, having limited partners and uh, raising a fund is, is especially as like a new manager in, you know, a difficult economic environment is not trivial. So I probably spent a lot more time on the, I mean, at Pearson, I was like a sole LP basically. And so it's, I wouldn't say I didn't spend time managing my sole LP, but now it's a different dynamic where you're, um, have many different stakeholders who are investors in your fund. And then also I'm doing all of the like back office admin myself, as well. I mean, I have an administrator, but you're still, you know, managing the administration of the fund and um, filing the paperwork and making sure your tax, uh, like people who are going to do the taxes are all, all lined up. So that's quite different. You mentioned something there that I think is underappreciated in the founder community, which is managing relationships, having relationships with LPs, you know, making sure the relationships stay strong. 
you know, here at Seed Scout, which is my full-time job, the podcast is more of the side thing. You know, we're all about networking and relationships and everything. And, you know, a lot of the founders come in thinking, oh, like, let's, you know, let's go to Seed Scout, let's raise capital and let's go back to building the company. And I need to communicate to them. No, it's actually like, you have to build relationships. It, it takes time. It's not transactional and, and, and it's going to take work. I'm curious for you, do you have any advice for founders, maybe, uh, you know, specifically out of network founders that aren't used to building relationships with investors? How can they better, I guess, do that and not necessarily raise capital, but just like, how do they start building up their, their, their friendships and their relationships with people that cut checks? So in a year or two or three, they have people to, to text saying they're fundraising. Do you have any tips there? Yeah, I think that they um, could like getting the timing right is important um, because if they're way too early, then I think it's hard for a VC to to engage. So I find myself now. I also think that they have to realize that it's especially at small funds or like solo GPs, like you go in your own cycles. So like two years ago, I probably would have taken if you reached out to me. And we're like, I want advice or I'd like, I'd like to talk. Like I probably would have taken the meeting because I had time, but now, especially because I'm fundraising myself, I, I just don't have time to like take any meeting unless I'm pretty serious about it. Um, and the other thing that I've been doing is doing more asynchronous evaluation of investments or discussions with founders. So like you can get a lot out of a video, like a loom video or like a newsletter updates uh, I, I write, you know, many newsletters actually. So I think that's a great way of, of keeping in touch with people. And um, I think that you kind of need to do those sort of like asynchronous stuff to, to keep on people's radar and, and build a relationship. Um, yeah. And then I think you have to be realistic about like where you sit in the ecosystem. You know, if you, if you have kind of an idea and not a lot of traction, then it's going to be like, it's hard for an investor to spend a lot of time on that. So you have to try and find the people who can give you that time that are not going to be, you may be your dream investor from day one when you start out. That's such a hard lesson to learn for founders. Like someone in Phoenix, Arizona might see someone in San Francisco who has a background working at Stripe and a VC firm raise a ton of money. And the founder's like, oh, they can do it. I can do it too. And you know, there's some element of self-awareness and kind of being like, okay, but like, what are the facts here? Even if they're not fair, you know, oftentimes they're not, but, you know, I think get, realizing where you, like you said, where you sit in the ecosystem and being okay with that, you know, and then trying to work up and work with what you got is like the number one thing I help founders figure out, like, you know, cause they all, mostly founders think they're farther than they are. And the, as soon as they realize that they're, no, they are where they are now move up is kind of where they start progressing in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so, yeah, it's true for funds as well. Right. So yeah. like, um, like often very similar. That's a, that's another thing too. Like founders, like, I guess, I guess the question is, you know, a lot of times us founders are like, Oh, this VC said no, or this one ghosted me, you know, the like, VCs are, you know, we like, you know, we're sometimes get angry at VCs not realizing that VCs actually have like a very similar job to founders, they're just a kind of a level up in the stack. What are the things that you wish founders, specifically first time early founders knew about the role of a VC that maybe they, they don't know that if they did know, they would have a little more, a little more empathy towards the role of, of a capital allocator like yourself? Yeah, I guess one is that you're just, you are under a lot of pressure to um, 
to demonstrate returns and good judgment and be a steward of capital. And in fact, like the more or the less established you are, the more that is true, right? Like, so for people like me, the scrutiny is going to be like 10 times higher than it is for, you know, pick your brand name, special VC, like, and so that makes it makes just makes it a high pressure environment. And then um, I think the other thing for founders is ventures not for everyone. And the and I would say that there the last two years have been truly like exceptional with interest rates at zero and COVID and and just like money just flowing out into the ecosystem. And that's obviously changed this year, but probably going to continue to, to, to change of just like less capital for, for venture backable startups. But uh, there are so many other types of capital out there, like ways to start a business. And, you know, as I said, we started our business bootstrapping and never raised any money and you can have a great exit and outcome that way. And so I think that, uh, you know, people should think a bit more about that. Totally. I completely agree. I think for, for one of my last questions is like, what are the avalanches that you're looking at now into the next decade? Are there certain trends that are happening that you're excited about? Or even more specifically, are there trends, are there avalanches just getting started that you think are just like really early that you think in the next five years are going to lead to like fantastic investment opportunities? Yeah. Um, one of the ones I'm working on right now is called edutainment that works, which is, I used to be really negative about what, you know, so what does edutainment mean? Usually it's like entertainment that has some sort of education quality, but really the education was an afterthought. So that was, it was a term invented by Walt Disney um, and kind of like talking about, you know, watching videos, right? But we all know that videos usually don't lead to, videos alone don't lead to education outcomes. And so I think we're gonna see a lot more like gaming in education, like immersive environments in education. Gaming is now the like largest category within media. It's like a two, $250 billion a year industry, 2.5 billion people um, game, you know, are gamers, which is half the planet. Uh, so I think that that's super interesting. Um, I'm a huge fan of no code and low code. I think that that makes everybody a entrepreneur. It makes it, it really lowers the barrier. So that, so both of those no code and low code and everybody's an entrepreneur are two avalanche themes, which is that you're, you're either going to be literally an entrepreneur or you're, you have to act like one within a, a corporation. I think we see more and more people who are freelancing, doing side hustles, like working on liquid super teams, you know, running their own micro business, but then they need the software to be able to kind of have that leverage or autonomy uh, to run their businesses. And then the other one is, um, I, we don't have like the perfect tagline for it yet. I kind of want to call it skills, skills, skills after like bills, build bills, but, um, as AI has leaped ahead and we've seen these amazing bumps with, you know, machine learning and, um, and Dolly and uh, GPT-3, human learning has to keep up, right? And it, in some ways it makes it much easier for, for people to do tasks that are kind of tedious, like writing or, you know, 
um, you know, designing an image potentially, but that potentially that can, can lead to de-skilling and means like, how are people going to be able to make the leap from amateur to expert to be able to actually, you know, have original ideas that an AI couldn't write or have art that is totally new and, or be able to do things with that art. And so that is a huge opportunity for sort of lifelong learning and um, investment into human capability to go alongside machines. So to kind of round us out, if there's any founders listening to this and they're like, oh, like that's what I'm building, right? Like this is like totally, this is totally up my alley. Like, are there ways people can connect with you online? Do you have a website? Do you have a Twitter presence? You know, you mentioned you have a newsletter. How can founders kind of connect with you in a way that you like, like people to connect with you, you know, in a way that like, you know, jives with you, whether it be newsletter subscription or followers or anything like that, how can people connect? I think Twitter is the best uh, as well as newsletters. Like I would read obviously the future. And then I have a weekly newsletter called declarative statements because I engage best on ideas and content. And so if you said, you're like, oh, I really love this avalanche. Like, have you read this article? Have you seen like this? That's like the best way to engage, to engage me. Um, like I love when I see a pitch deck and there's a stat that, that I've never seen before, or like an idea that then really fits with a theme. And, um, yeah, one of the things specifically I've been on the hunt for is a trillion dollar facts. So, you know, if anyone has like a trillion dollar fact, like something that creates a trillion dollars of impact, I'm always interested in that. All right. Well, if you have a trillion dollar fact, you know who to go to. Caitlin, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. I love your thesis. I love everything you're doing over at Avalanche. And I wish you best of luck getting 100 decacorns in the future. Thanks for coming on to the podcast. Thanks for having me.